it just like life, it's never all one thing, right? It's, it's never all good, all bad. There are layers everywhere you look. And so here I am sitting here having this, this treatment happen to me. And, and the song I think is so powerful about, um, just the need to press on despite anything. Welcome to Sing, Coach, Conduct, the podcast for singers and singing teachers. feel like I'm at a loss for words in trying to introduce this next episode. If you don't know who Molly Grace Young is, you are in for such a treat. She's an incredible woman, performer, teacher, resilient human being. When she found out she had cancer at the age of 29, she took her lifetime of performing and love of music and used it as a way to bring light into a very dark place. I also have to mention, she is hilarious. I think you are going to laugh so much during this episode. I know that I did. We were doing a video conference interview and we had so many audio issues at the beginning. So you're gonna hear some strange things and then you're gonna hear us talk about wanting to fix them and then the audio is gonna get better. So enjoy that part as well. Well, I just really appreciate your time so much, and I'm really excited to learn like everything about you. And I um and I would love to start by you know hearing how you got into music. You know, how did music become a part of your life? I understand that your family is very musical, and so just start from the yeah. beginning. Tell tell me everything. The very beginning, 1987. Picture it, Princeton, New Jersey. Um, uh, I was, um, sorry, I got I got on a little like Sophia Golden Girls kick there for a second. Um, uh, so my the beginning is my parents, right? Um, they they are both singers. They actually met at University of Maryland when they were both vocal performance majors, um, and they they are have been musicians, of course, my whole life, and they went into the ministry. Um, a little bit later, I was actually born in Princeton because my father was in seminary there and then my mother as well. Um, so it's funny because one of the biggest struggles I had as a teacher when I first started teaching piano, especially was that I had to really work on how to teach music reading because I don't remember when I learned. Um, I'm pretty sure I, you know, was sitting on the piano bench next to my mom, like, three, four years old and starting with the, the Bastion primer levels at a really young age. Um, and also, of course, growing up in the church, singing in hymns every Sunday. And before I could actually read the words, um, I have a distinct memory of um, singing with the hymnal open and like looking at the notes, looking, looking through the music, but I couldn't actually read the words. So I just mm -hmm. used the text from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer along with any hymn tune and just like fit that <laughs> I hope it wasn't terribly loud, but I remember thinking I was really clever just like coming up with my own variation of the words. And But I, you know, you, you grow up surrounded by so much music and that both of my older brothers are also musicians. So um, that was just kind of a given. It was, it was definitely part of my childhood going to concerts, going to performances, but also the music at home and on both, both extended sides of the family as well. Lots and lots of music. 
um, through school, through church, grew up with, you know, children's choir and piano lessons. And um, by the time I was nine, we moved to Midland, which anyone I think who's from Midland would tell you it's a wonderful community for the arts. It's a great place to grow up um, as a performer because between um, my educators at school and my directors at church and the Midland Center for the Arts, there were so many different opportunities and ways to get on stage and gain experience and learn from from other, you know, I hesitate to say colleagues at that age, but other, other kids and um, certainly amazing teachers that I was so fortunate to, to learn from and work with at a young age and that really prepared me for knowing that that's what I wanted to do too. So I'm really grateful for that community for sure. Where did you move from? Did you say where you lived before you came to Midland? Uh, Fargo, North Dakota. So I was born in, I said I was born in Princeton. We lived in New Jersey until I was about six. And then my parents um, agreed to start a new church development in Fargo. And so we were there for three years. And then we moved to Michigan, I guess it was 96. Yeah, I was nine years old. So my father was at Chapel Lane Presbyterian, and later my mother was at Memorial. I think you're at Memorial, right? I am, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, so many wonderful church communities in Midland and also music within those those churches and, of course, the Fine Arts Center, too. Um, did you ever perform when you were a kid? You talk about um, looking at the at the hymnal and, and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and all of that is so great. I, I love that because when we're kids, we don't even realize we're just taking in all this stuff and, you know, learning to love music and having music be a part of our lives. Like, what is your earliest memory of performing? Probably, I would guess, children's choir. Um, I think in Fargo. Um, And like doing like Christmas pageants and things like that. Um, and also in Fargo, I got first got involved in handbells and played in handbell choir mm-hmm. um, there. So those would be my earliest performance memories. Also piano recitals, which I hated. Um, I, I love to play the piano. I never, as a kid, really liked liked performing on it. My older brother, Micah, is actually a pianist. <laughs> and like, that's what he did. Um, so so he, he enjoyed that a lot more than I did, I think. But... Um, yeah, I actually didn't get on stage in like a musical, like in a show until the summer after eighth grade was my very first show. Um, I was actually kind of shy as a kid. I didn't like want to get on stage um, too much, but I think it was through TMI, the Teenage Musicals um, summer group, that the summer after my eighth grade year, my oldest brother was going off to college and I thought, oh, I might not have a chance to do this with him again. You know, if he doesn't come back in the summer, if he goes off and does all these other things. So I was like, I might as well just give it a shot. So I was in the chorus for Hello Dolly's, my very first show with TMI. And um, yeah, just kind of went from there. You get bit by that bug and it never really goes away. <laughs> that's true. That's true. So when did you know that you wanted music to be a part of your career? I would say, um, you know, through through middle school, high school, that's what I understood I would be doing. Um and I remember kind of talking to, you know, going through the process with your high school counselor and talking about college and this and that. And I don't think that they, the counselors I talked to had a ton of experience trying to guide someone into a performance degree or, or even understood what that was, to be fair. Um, and so I was very fortunate my parents did 
even though they were pastors by this time, they had gone to music school. They kind of knew the drill. Um, so I, I'm a little bit naive, or I was as a high schooler, because I thought I was going to like go to Broadway. I don't really have a very strong musical theater voice, um, and I don't dance. I can be taught to learn choreography, but I am not a dancer. And so my parents very patiently like touted me around to all the musical theater auditions for these schools. And um, I got into all the schools academically, but they were like, you're not like a broad, you're not a theater voice. And um, so I ended up going to Western Michigan um, kind of late decision and did, you know, the, the classical voice performance degree there. And I don't know, it, it took a while for me to kind of understand what does that look like as a career? I think when I was younger and in high school, it was like, okay, you, you go to school for musical theater and then you make it on Broadway and you do it. Um, and the path of what you can do with a classical degree wasn't as obvious to me, even having had parents who went through it too. But the thing was, you know, I, I knew of their careers and, and their kind of career path switch to the ministry. So it wasn't as obviously laid out to me, what am I going to do with my um, degree and experience? Mm -hmm. um, quick question. I hear a sound. Yeah. I okay. was going to say something too. I was like, I just didn't want to go on for too much longer if it's on the recording. I'm really glad that you said that too. And it's I was like, like I'm like, I'm listening to you, but I'm like, oh no, there's a weird sound all of a sudden. What is it? Okay, hold on. Okay, we're gonna try again with the we're okay. gonna try again with this headphone. Yeah. Oh wait. It's still on my end. I can hear it. Okay, all right. This is it's so kind weird. of nice. Okay, we'll it's, try again. it's got the ambiance of like um, you know, if you put on like cricket noises to fall asleep to, that's what it sounds like yeah. over here. You had just left off at, you. that didn't necessarily mean you knew exactly what path that you wanted to go down. So yeah. you went to Western, and um, and what degree did you pursue? So at Western, I went into the performance major. Um, they have a very strong education school as well. But I think I knew then, and I'm glad I knew then, that I don't have the magic gift of classroom teaching, which I have so many wonderful colleagues who do, and I have absolute mad respect for that. It's not something that I've ever really been drawn to or, or very good at, I don't think. I love to teach one-on-one. -on -one. I think I'm very good at that. Um, but yeah, I, I went to the performance route there. Um, and I think one of the most valuable things I got out of my education at Western was the experience in the choral program. Um, because that's been a huge part of my livelihood. And like, what I get paid to do is is singing in professional choirs a lot of the time. And we, we had opera as well and, and of course, you know, solo recitals and everything else. But um, that's that's something that I'm really grateful I went to, to that institution for because especially since it is such a strong education school, you've got choirs full of students who love choir deeply, who want to be choral educators, who want to be directors. Um, so it... I feel at Western being part of the choir was not so much like the, the offshoot thing you have to do as kind of a drag that some music majors will feel about it. But it was like, it was competitive to get into the top choir, like really meant something. It was like this huge point of pride. Um, so did you work with, with uh, Kimberly Dunn Adams? Is that who you had at Western? She came the year after I left my, my freshman year. It was Joe Miller 
And then he went on to Westminster, and um, I had the great fortune of working with James Bass for the four years he was there. So, and through him, um, that was the connection we had to Seraphic Fire, um, which is a Miami-based choral ensemble, and we got to record the Monteverdi Vespers with them and mm-hmm. do a choir tour. This is our last, my last year there. We did a choir tour down to Mexico City and performed it there. Just amazing opportunities, and I think meeting that as as a college student, meeting this like professional chamber ensemble of working singers who weren't opera stars necessarily mm-hmm. meant like that, that sh- made a huge impact on me because I think that's, that's kind of confusing sometimes for young music students is like, okay, you can be a choir teacher or you can do opera and those are your options. And it's just not true. There's so much else out there that we can explore and enjoy. And I really love opera but not to the passionate extent that I would want to make it my full-time only thing that I do Mm. um and so yeah it was very formative as a as a music student to get to not only meet these people and kind of pick their brains a little bit but perform alongside them and record with them was such a just absolute huge privilege for us at that age and at that time. Yeah, I saw that you have a lot of um, performance experience and you also performed for the Pope. Is that right? Yes, yes. Uh, I'm trying to think if it was both Popes. No, I think it was just Francis a couple times. Um, so I, one of my kind of mainstay gigs when I've lived in D.C. the past 10 years or so was singing for the Basilica of the National Shrine, which is America's like biggest Catholic church. It's this enormous, beautiful building, wonderful space to sing in, and a wonderful group of colleagues there and friends. And um, yeah, every three years or so, we would take kind of a, a pilgrimage tour or, or trip, rather, to Rome and sing there. So again, so much, <laughs> so much of my life and my experiences I owe to choir and good choral singing and training all the way back from Bob Sabrin at Midland High and other educators that I've had along the way. Really been amazing. So what did you dream of doing when you when you were at this point in your life, when you were traveling with the choir, you were having all these experiences? What did you dream of your life becoming at that point? That is a great question. And I don't think I have a specific answer because I think um, by the time, so, so after Western, I um, went to Peabody in Baltimore, moved to the East Coast. And um, I think as a graduate student, and especially since the graduate program is shorter and you're kind of starting to look at, okay, what do I do after I graduate? How do I, um, you know, not become that starving artist cliche? Um, the dream is to, <laughs> for me, the dream at the time was how do I support myself as a musician? I don't want to be a star. I don't, I don't care if I make it on big grand levels, but I would love to be able to pay my rent, to pay my bills, um, and support myself as a musician, as a working musician. That's all I ever really wanted. And, Mm -hmm. um, one of the huge benefits I think of having gone to Peabody was that even while I was still a graduate student, I was so close. I was close enough to New York. I was close enough to DC, you know, that everything on the East coast was so, um, accessible that I was able to start building a network, start getting some gigs while I was still a student and kind of bridge into post student life a little bit more easily than, you know, um, your location can be so important in graduate school, I think. 
Where did you meet your husband? You said your husband, he's a pediatrician, is that right? Yes. Yeah, he's a pediatrician for the Air Force. So that's why we've mm-hmm. kind of been moving around a little bit. Uh, yeah, he and I met on Bumble. Thank goodness for technology, right? Nice. <laughs> it's you hear more, more and more of that of those stories about people meeting, you know, through uh, platforms like that. So that's awesome. So you're so you you talk about you you moved right. So you were living you were living in Washington D.C. and then you moved to Texas for a year. Yes. So talk to me about what that was like moving to Texas during the pandemic. Oh man. Um, to be honest. You know, initially before the pandemic hit, I, it was already kind of bittersweet, like leaving this network of people I'd had for so long. And especially as a performer, um, you know, in DC, there's a lot of directors who know who I am and I'm able to get work. Um, and to start all over, um, as a performer, it was a little daunting, but I also thought, you know, this is probably good. I, you know, I haven't had to audition in a while. This will kind of like give me dust off my chops a little bit. Um, but then the pandemic hit actually the week or two after we got married was when everything absolutely shut down, um, in March and we were moving to Texas in July, 2020. Um, so it was a little bit difficult in that we came here and in under normal circumstances, I would have in, immediately started auditioning for all the church directors and any of the, the groups here in San Antonio. And through that, I know I would have built a community. I would have met other singers and like kind of had people here. But that part of my life was totally severed. Um, and even if I had stayed in D.C., like the, the performing, of course, was a, was minimized by a great amount. Um the one thing I was able to continue to do was teach. And I kind of think of that as a silver lining actually of this pandemic is that I had never tried virtual teaching before. And I would always have assumed it like wasn't going to be doable. I wouldn't be as good as it at it. But um, in March, I started virtual teaching my Maryland students. And we all just kind of had to learn how to, you know, roll with the punches and figure it out. And there are some learning curves along the way. Um, but it turned out that when I moved to Texas, all those students I'd had in Maryland under normal circumstances, stances, I probably would have given them to another teacher. I might've, you know, just never seen them again. And instead they were all like, yeah, well, if we can virtual, we do the virtual thing with you in Maryland, why not from Texas? So I moved here, kept teaching all my, my studio from Maryland and started, uh, got connected with some school districts here in Texas to have students here. Meanwhile, one of my students I'd had in Maryland before moved back home to France, but still wanted to continue lessons. So I actually have students across four different time zones right now. Um, oh my gosh. From Mountain, Central, Eastern, and whatever France. <laughs> so um, the, and that's an amazing thing, again, because it's, I think we often look at the the lockdown, the pandemic time as such a, a terribly negative time of closing everything down and not ha- mm-hmm. not feeling connected to one another. But for me, the opposite was true in my teaching in that I've been able to expand, um, you know, clients, students that I'm able to work with. And the hardest part is just to make sure I don't make mistakes with the time zones and time changes. Um, that's a little bit of math sometimes that I, I've made mistakes. I will admit that, but uh, I'm getting better. So that's good. Um, what age group do you teach? The youngest students I have are 
five, six years old, and I teach all the way up to retirement to, to whatever. I think that the what what keeps me motivated or what keeps me kind of um, I guess engaged in music education is that it's never over for any of us. Like there's no age at which you cannot enjoy the process of learning music and, and growing as a musician. So I have some some students who, you know, are kind of in like the, the high school college age of wanting to prepare for their school show or whatever. I have um, adult students who just want to up their karaoke game. Um, I had a student, um, I think in his 70s, who I got connected to with, with one of my previous teachers and they were friends at church. And he literally, he wanted to try lessons just to get better at singing hymns at church and feel feel like a, a part of the the church sing. Um, so there's, you know, there's such a wide spectrum of why would somebody want to study voice? Why would somebody want to take lessons? And to me, I just think that's so human and so beautiful that, ev- you know, you don't have to be able to afford a fancy violin. Everyone has a voice. And, and f- my, I feel that my, my passion and my call as a teacher is just to help singers get better at whatever they love, whatever they want to do. If it's singing lullabies to their children, if it's, you know, getting on stage for open mics, whatever. Um, everyone's got, got an instrument within themselves. And I think, I hate to be biased, but I totally am as a singer, that it's something more special and more unique than any other instrument. And you can fight me on that, but, um, <laughs> you know, I can get I can get 10 trumpets in the same room and, there will be variances among the players, but the instruments are the same. But human voices are absolutely the most individual and unique um, music maker that we we know. It's wonderful. I love that, and that's what makes it difficult too. That it's so personal. I mean that. Oh yeah. So so there are benefits, like you said. It's it's just one of the most beautiful, unique things because. Yes. Each, each of us is unique, mm-hmm. but then also there is that vulnerability that comes with singing that doesn't come with instruments that you take out of a case and that you can put back in the case. Yes. I mean, it, it is an extension of us and our soul, um, but it's also such a special gift, like you said, to work with your students who, there are people who are studying with you because they just want to learn more. You, you said they want to be able to sing lullabies to their to their children or their grandchildren. And how beautiful is that? Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I think that's another kind of aspect of the, um, the way in, in which music is intertwined with life really. And that sounds so kind of corny, but um, I was thinking about this the other day that there's no, there's no type of ceremony of our lives that doesn't have music. If it's graduation, mm. if it's a wedding, if it's a funeral, um, we there's there's something across the board doesn't matter if if you studied music or not or if you're a musician and you just like to listen but i, I can you no one can imagine our lives without a soundtrack even inaugurations and um every every kind of moment of importance and gravity in life i think is accompanied by music in some way whether we really are aware of it or not but um that's something that's really special i think especially as a um as a performer that, you know, the times that I've been privileged to sing for other people's funerals, other people's weddings, and these little slices of life and and moments that need a soundtrack, need music to celebrate Mm -hmm. it. 
Well, my husband's a DJ and he will tell you, you just said that perfectly. He loves to create, he used to do this, um, he would create soundtracks to our life or he'd be playing a song when a moment would be happening. Mm -hmm. I think it's just kind of the um, occupational hazard of being married to a musician (laughs) is that we we experience these, you know, these quirky little things. Um, Is your your husband, uh, he must love music. He's married to a musician, but is he musical himself? He will tell you that he is not, but he is wrong. And I've told him this so many times. He says he had a voice teacher as a kid that told him he had a voice like a crow and it would be better if he didn't sing, <laughs> which is just not true. He sings, but he sings all the time. He's constantly singing around the house and um, just making silly voices and stuff. But he's, he's not had any musical background, um, you know, formally of any kind. Hmm. Walk me through when you found out that you had cancer? So 2017, I guess you could probably say it was late 2016, but somewhere around there in December, January, I had felt um, a lump in on the side. And I do count myself rather fortunate because um, for young women, for young patients, our tissue is so dense that it's, unfortunately kind of easy sometimes if a tumor is placed is is kind of situated further in you might not notice it for quite a while and I was lucky mine was very far to the side kind of almost on my rib it felt and a lot of people have asked me this were you doing self-checks were you uh, you must have been so fastidious about that good for you no I wasn't I think I was probably just like changing at some point and kind of noticed it and thought oh it's just one of those weird things about boobs it's gonna go away and it didn't. I mean, you know, one of those, one of those weird things. One of those weird. They're they're just such strange fun bags. Um, how old were you? I was twenty nine. So, um, and worthy of note, I I because of the Affordable Care Act, I started a health plan January first, two thousand seventeen. I'd been on my parents' health insurance until I was twenty six, but between twenty six and twenty nine, um. It was kind of one of those things that was on the table of my budget that I didn't really pay attention to um, and didn't feel like I needed. Like, I'm pretty healthy. But then eventually, you know, when Obamacare came around and I was looking into that, being like, okay, like I could actually afford health insurance. Isn't this nice? And happened to start that plan January and I got diagnosed with cancer in February. So... Wow. Incredibly fortunate um, because I think about that a lot too, that um, looking back, if I had not been insured, I bet you anything I would have delayed getting this looked at because I wouldn't have felt that I could afford the doctor's appointment just to be told that I had cancer, not to mention all the treatments and everything. Um, and that's a re- that's such a scary position to be in to have to like try to what juggle the finances of the treatments that you need that could save your life. Um, so I was signed up with Kaiser Permanente in January, like I said, and found out that I was diagnosed in February by April had two surgeries. And I, you know, like I said earlier, I was so healthy up to that point. I'd never broken a bone. I'd never stayed overnight in the hospital, nothing. And then all of a sudden, you know, something that I think by October of that year, if I tallied up the pre-insurance cost of my treatments, we were getting upwards of a quarter of a million dollars, Um, which 
it doesn't matter how many hours I ever put in as a freelance singer and teacher. Also coming, you know, and I have student loan debt. Like, there was no way I was going to be able to afford to pay for cancer. And I don't think anyone should have to. It's not, you know, it's, it's, um, it's something I do feel very strongly about, that access to healthcare is something that we haven't quite figured out in this country yet, and I think we should that's a goal, but that's a whole nother podcast. Well, you did do an interview with, was it NPR about the Affordable Care Act or um, it helped me to remember that? Yeah, Michelle Martin. Um, so it just so happens that the first time I went through cancer in 2017 was also when there were many, many attempts to bring down the ACA. And so here I am in a car, you know, driving between appointments and just lamenting my whole existence. And I'm having to listen to um, Congress debate over whether or not I should have access to that health insurance and trying to mentally look towards the months of how long my radiation is going to take or my chemotherapy and wondering, okay, well, if they vote it down today, when does that go into effect? Well, I still have insurance next year. Um, and just what a ridiculous... What a ridiculous thing for a citizen of such a ostensibly wonderful country to have to worry about. Um, but because of all that going on in Congress at the time, NPR decided, you know, to be covering that, of course. And I had a friend who worked there and he texted me at like 11 o'clock on a Wednesday night and said, can you get down to NPR at Thursday midday and be interviewed by Michelle Martin? I was like, Sure, yeah. So I know a lot about laws and very, you know, <laughs> important things. So I'm like sitting up, you know, and I'm thinking I haven't, you know, studied this hard since grad school. And I'm sitting up trying to read all the articles, figure out what they're talking about and why and, and what are all the kind of layers to this situation. Because like I said, I'm a music major. I don't know what, exactly what's going on. Um, but all of a sudden being forced into caring quite a bit about this issue and I think um, that is a strange kind of luxury or privilege. A lot of American voters, I think we don't tend to educate ourselves on the issues unless it directly affects us personally, um, which is something we could all, myself included, stand to work on. Um, but, but all of a sudden being in that situation where I am the cancer patient and I'm the one who's um, literally whose life depends on it. So went in and yeah, did an interview about that. And it was a, it was a cool experience to go to NPR. I'll say that for sure. It was neat. How, how did your emotional um, journey unfold from the moment you found out that you had cancer through the months that you were processing everything that was happening? Well, I remember the moment being on the phone hearing it and just, you know, it's very hard to believe something like that could happen to you, especially in my case, I don't have any family history. I don't have, we found out later, I don't have any um, of the genetic markers or anything. So it was just really bad luck. And I think um, the most honest way to respond to that question is to say that it's a lot of everything all the time. Um, that to be blunt, there is like there's a portion of my psyche or there is a version of myself that is always like off in the corner sobbing somewhere, but she's not always at the front. So, because I, I, I can't actually function day to day if I allow myself to fully experience and fully feel the trauma 
of, of what cancer is. And it, it is, it's a trauma. Um, and so it's more this juggling of every facet of my outlook and, and my attitude. And there are days when that is very fierce and that is very defiant. And that is very like, you know, battle, battle plans against the cancer kind of feeling. And there are other days where it's just like, it's, it feels like the hugest weight just to get up and move around and, um, enjoy the world around you with this huge cloud just over your soul, to be honest. Um, but that, that path, especially that first spring, you know, um, I was stage two. And so, you know, it, it involved a lot of treatments coming up that I was looking at that I was scared of, but it didn't feel quite as dire, of course, that's early stage. Um, but looking towards surgery and then chemotherapy, immunotherapy, radiation, hormone therapy, there was so much on the list. Um, and that's kind of what led me to some of my more creative projects involving the treatment. And the first thing I think um, happened because I was listening to the radio and probably switching the radio off from hearing Congress debate about the ACA, but Kelly Clarkson's What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Stronger came on. And I was listening to the words and, and thinking about the title especially and thinking what a perfect analogy that is for chemotherapy because it's such, I mean, it, it does feel like putting yourself in this chair and, and letting yourself willingly be poisoned. It's, it's something that kills so many of the good parts of you in an effort to attack these, these cancer cells. And so the idea being like, well, if it doesn't kill you, you get to live and isn't that great, but it is, um, you know, it's definitely something to survive. But listening to that song brought me back to this idea of how we use music in our lives and what is what does music empower or or kind of concentrate our about our emotions, and that one in particular, I thought this is a this is a battle anthem. This is a fight song, um, and so I somehow got this idea to use that. That's my very first video. And I don't really go back and watch the early ones because I'm ashamed because they're so uh, pedestrian at this point. Um, <laughs> yeah, the production, the production, the production value goes goes changed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really did. Um, so the first ones, I don't even have a costume. Oh my goodness, um, I'm I'm wearing red lipstick. I think I was wearing like sunglasses in one of them, maybe. But it was a thing where I was like, all right. I, and I think it's when I look back, even though I didn't, I couldn't have articulated it this way then, I think this was kind of threefold. And number one was, is kind of a selfish thing and, and just to distract myself, having an activity. Everyone who told me, gave me any advice about going into chemo said, well, you should have something to do. You know, a book is not going to be enough, like take up knitting or something. Um, and so the idea of having a, a performance or a production as part of my treatment really appealed to me because it's, it is so boring. People always assume that the infusion itself might be painful or difficult in, in some cases perhaps, but with my drugs, I didn't feel a thing until days later. So the infusion itself is just sitting there for six hours, sometimes eight hours, sometimes. Um, 
and so having something to do to keep myself kind of occupied and the idea of, of my psyche as a toddler and I just need to hand it pots and pans so it just kind of stays distracted. But I think the second part of why I started these videos was, um, of course, for my friends and my family. I have a lot of family spread out, you know, North Dakota and wherever else, that, you know, if they if we lived in the same spot, these are these are people who would come bring me a casserole. You know, these are people who would want to drive me to my appointments or, or help in some way. And just by virtue of the distance, they couldn't. And I know that now that I felt very guilty. And this is so unreasonable, but I think other cancer patients will, will understand what I mean by this, is that, gosh, having to tell, I mean, in my case, having to tell your parents, your grandparents, um, that this this has happened to you, having to share this with, with all your friends and kind of, it feels like injecting this darkness into other people's lives. And I think I felt a very strong need to compensate. So mm. I had made everybody sad. I didn't mean to, but it was still, it was, it still felt like my fault. It still felt like everybody is super bummed out and I'm not comfortable with that. So how do I make them happy again? Um, and I look at the videos a little bit like these little snapshot postcards, and especially initially when they were so short, uh, these little postcards that I'm sending out to, to my grandparents or to whoever else and saying, I'm okay. This is going to be okay. Sucks, but I can do it. And I'm going to do it with a smile. And so are you. Um, and the, the extent to which that started to ripple out to so many other people was not necessarily something I anticipated. I'm so humbled and grateful for that. But that so many times I've got a message from a friend and they have a friend of a friend who just got diagnosed or so and so forth. And they've said, you know, I shared my video and it, it actually made them smile for the first time since they got their news and that kind of thing. That's, that makes it, I hesitate to say worth it. I'm not sure anything makes my cancer worth it, but I am happy. I think I can say that to, to have done something with this experience and with this time that has on any level helped someone else, cheered someone else, brought back a little bit more light to the world than the darkness that I feel that I brought. Um, and I, I'm, I'm aware that that's kind of an unreasonable way to look at it on the side of the guilt, but I can't help that. I think, I think any way that you feel is reasonable. Yeah. It's valid for sure. It is. It's, it's all valid. Um, you, you shared a really special story with me on the phone the other day when we were kind of doing like a pre-interview thing. And you, you talked about um, uh, a mom who had reached out to you because of her children, the way they viewed her being sick. Can you, can you tell us about that? Yeah, a few, a few different um, messages and experiences that way where I've heard from a mother going through cancer treatment and saying, I don't know how to talk about this with my kids. They're so scared, you know, when they see mom losing her hair or this, you know, all the other effects that are going on with chemo. And then they see one of your videos and it really, it makes them smile. It makes them laugh. And I think the accessibility of seeing, oh, that's the same, the same machine that mom is hooked up to. And, um, but look how silly this is. You know, <laughs> I put Christmas lights on my infusion IV stand for my Mariah Cara video at uh, Christmas, or um, I did Hakuna Matata with my brother when he came to visit, and we had like flowers and tropical things all over the IV stand. And I think, you know, there was a there's a Christmas card I got from the daughter of a 
patient that I got connected to with social media and oh my goodness it said um you know Merry Christmas and all this and she said what would I do without you you make me happy not sad and I was just I mean we've never met and to me that is the most amazing and remarkable thing about social media there's there it's a double-edged sword for sure but I think that um ability to connect and share and empower one another. That's the most valuable thing that we can get out of, out of the internet, to be honest. You have really seemed for whatever your reason was, you know, you talk about the intention and how you felt like you had brought this darkness into people's lives. And so you were trying to counter it. Um, But the result of that is so incredible. And the way that you have, helped people and I had shared with you earlier about you feeling like this giant like of a of a person it, just the things that you have done and your bravery and um it's just I, I think artists we kind of are just like this aren't we I mean what would you say about would you have any statement to make about the way that we try to take life and do something with it. Do you think that that's something that that's inherent in everyone? Or do you think that there's something special about being a musician or an artist that kind of forces us into this, into this emotional place? That's a great question. Um, I, I, in reflecting back, I do, I do think that my experience as a performer or my kind of performer personality, whatever you want to call it, has been a huge help to me. Because I think back to like, just, you know, I, I didn't stop performing through treatment the previous time when they were still performing to do. Um, and I also didn't wear a wig. I felt that was very uncomfortable. Um, actually, this is the funniest thing. I only wear wigs when I'm in costume. I wear lots of wigs, but it's always for my silly videos. Um, and I, I have... I have hats, you know, if it's sunny, but I'm not a big wig wearer. And at the the big church that I was singing for in D.C., you know, every every Sunday we're processing down through this massive, massive crowd. And, um, you know, getting stared at to that extent, I think could and sometimes did make me a little uncomfortable. But I am also really accustomed to being stared at, like being in the spotlight and being on stage has been a part of my life for a very long time. Um, so I think that was kind of an armor or kind of, you know, it definitely assisted me through that to not, not feel as self-conscious all the time, but just to kind of decide, well, I'm going to act like my, my character in this moment is okay with having cancer and okay with, with being stared at, you know, you just kind of create that persona for yourself. Um, especially in public, I think. Um, but yeah, being able to be very transparent, be very, very open on social media about everything and try to use this, try to do something with it. I think the psychology of productivity and creativity is really important. Um, it's, it's, it would have been easier maybe in some ways to just cut myself off from everyone and everything and stop teaching, stop performing and just like, I don't know, crumble into myself and worry about these cells and all this stuff going on inside. But yeah, to externalize it, to, to put something else out, I think is, 
is a is a treatment in itself for me. For our listeners who have never seen your videos, um, well, first off, I'm going to encourage everyone to go see your videos. <laughs> if they want to go see your lip sync videos, where do they go? What do, what do they search for? Probably the easiest is YouTube, where I have a channel at the unsinkable Molly Grace, which I stole from Molly Brown, but it's been a good, a good um, name for that. I also, I've always posted them on Facebook as well, where I'm easily found, uh, Molly Grace Young, but YouTube has kind of all of them right in a row. So I ended up doing 30 videos the first time and now season two we got renewed and we're on the eighth i think i just did the eighth one so there's 38 total and they have evolved quite a bit haven't they they have i've gotten you know sometimes i look back at the earlier ones and i just i almost wish i could redo them there's 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 probably not a single video that i can't look at and think oh i would i would do have done this differently or i would have changed this angle or whatever but the thing is you know it is you're there during a medical appointment. So there's, there's a limited time um, to get this all done. And, you know, things like now I have a ring light and a stand and these things. And before I was literally just holding my phone and videotaping that way. Um, or there at my old treatment center, there were these TVs that were kind of hooked into the wall, but that you could kind of move the screen right in front of you. But I wouldn't use it for TV. I would ask the nurses for surgical tape so I could tape my phone to that screen and use it <laughs> as a camera. Um, you know, and you learn you learn different things along, along the way about uh, <laughs> practicing your makeup ahead of time so you know exactly how fast you can do it. And, um, you know, having having costume pieces that either need to be put on ahead of time or can be put on while there's the the tube coming out of my chest. So a lot of that, you know, if it's over the head, where's the tube going to go? And all that kind of silly logistics stuff that again, that's such a distraction to me. And I would rather be sitting in that chair thinking, okay, how, how am I going to do this makeup or make this costume that, you know, fit into the angle of what am I, where I'm at in the camera instead of sitting there just feeling sorry for myself and, you know, waiting for it to be over and that it's happening to me, I feel like I'm, as you said, doing something with it is really important for me. I just loved going through your videos from the beginning to the most recent. And anytime, I have to tell you, anytime that anyone does anything in a Tyrannosaurus Rex costume, it is my favorite thing in the world. And I know that doesn't fall in like your lip syncing category um, videos, but it was just, I was just dying the whole time. I was laughing so hard. It was so awesome. And so my first question is, was that really you? Because I'm going to assume it was you in that costume, but you can't tell. Like, I mean, you're watching it, right? And it, and and so I would assume it was you in there. Um, and how fun was it to, to run around in that costume? <laughs> it was so great. That was, that was in the category of... So, so one thing I learned is when you get cancer, people want to give you presents for it. Um, which is very sweet, but it is kind of a weird thing that we do that we want to send each other gifts for this terrible thing. Um, you know, like not happy birthday, but oh no, cancer, here's a present. Um, and, and some of them for me, things like the, the chicken soup for the cancer soul and some of the, yeah, I got a lot of tea, a lot of mugs, a lot of like Afghans and things. Very, very well-intentioned. 
Um, and I think there are certain patients who would have made terrific use of all that. But to me, I kind of look at those items and I feel like the implication is like, now this has happened to me and I, my world is black and white now and I, I sit next to a window and I sip tea and think about and read about my cancer, <laughs> which just is like, <laughs> that's going to kill me faster than anything else. So fortunately, there was also a category of far more nonsensical items and one of them was that inflatable T-Rex costume. And it was kind of like this challenge for myself, like the more ridiculous stuff I got sent, it, it sparked my creativity in figuring out a way to use it. What do I do with this? How do I turn this into a costume? One of my proudest moments was figuring out, um, my aunt sent me a Princess Leia costume. I don't even remember why, if there was any point to it or if she just saw it and thought of me. But um, I ended up lip syncing to Papa Can You Hear Me from Yentl as Princess Leia. And then at the end, she's holding a Darth Vader helmet. And, it, you know, that kind of thing, I don't know if that, like, lands with everybody or I don't know what audience that's going for, but it doesn't matter because that, that falls under the category of what I'm going to call, like, my own selfish desire for delight and glee is that it made me really happy to be lip-syncing Barbara Streisand as Princess Leia and the fun thing with that video is that's the one that um, Sony flagged and got me kicked off Facebook for a while um, oh, wow. on copyright, which is totally within their realm to do. But I fought it and I got connected and I was emailing with somebody at Sony and um, eventually they like reviewed it and then told me it was okay, but just not to stop, to stop putting the artist in the title, which fine. But the fact that somebody in their workday at Sony had to watch my video <laughs> and and like make a judgment call on whether or not I was exploiting the music for a financial gain. Just like that tickles my funny bone to no end. I just, I love it. I love it. Love it. Getting back to the T-Rex though. Yeah. So that's not as practical to take into a, an infusion center. Um, but I did, use it in other videos and like kind of clipping together some stuff. So that is me in a T-Rex costume running around Midtown Baltimore. And the great thing about Baltimore, I love that city. I lived there like 10 years. Um, you know, people kind of noticed, but they didn't care. <laughs> you see weirder stuff in Baltimore than some bald chick running around in a T-Rex costume. So I kind of felt like it fit. It was, it was all right. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, that whole story that just made, I it's just, it's just so funny. So funny. And, um, oh my gosh. And your friends, what a great group of friends you have. Um, there's another video where I guess your friends rented a limo for you and like, you had this red carpet rolled out and like, so you showed up to your treatment in a limo. To um, surgery. Yeah. Oh, to surgery. To surgery. Yeah. Amazing. It was actually one of uh, a friend of mine who'd, who'd been a roommate. And I think at the time was he, that was when he lived in Brazil. He's the associate conductor of the Brazilian national symphony. And he contacted my parents and was just like, I want to do something. I know she has surgery. Like I, I, I want to get her a limo. Um, so he booked a limo and my parents and um, one of the, my roommate at the time and I, Took a limo to the hospital, did the red carpet rollout, went in and got a tumor taken out, which was great. 
Yeah. Um, um, your friends also started this thing called the the Red Lip Army. Mm-hmm. Right. Tell me about that. Yeah, that is something so, so spectacular. And I think it comes down again to controlling your narrative a little bit because within minutes of getting diagnosed, I remember turning to my mom and being like, this is the pink cancer. I hate pink. Like, I'm just not a pink person, really. And not only that, not just the pink ribbon stuff, but I am so uncomfortable with pity. And I knew as soon as I shared that I had cancer, like, everyone was going to start kind of talking about me like this and, you know, mm. you know doing that, that hushed thing where it's like, I'm not dead yet. Let's, let's just keep the energy going, you know? Um, but, but that's how cancer makes people react. And I thought I would rather have this, um, tone or this, this angle on the story of power, of strength, of anything, you know, positive. And I think, um, both because Wonder Woman was coming out that summer, the, uh, the, live action movie. Um, there were a lot of Wonder Woman stuff. I started getting sent. Somebody referred to me as Wonder Woman in, I think, a limo photo that I posted before surgery. And so that kind of became a theme. And then a, I had been posting a lot of photos, um, either, you know, just stuff about the ACA, stuff about my surgeries, anything like that, and often wearing bright red lipstick. And it was actually a Midland friend, Emily Anderson, who said, I think we should all wear red lipstick with you on your treatment days. Brilliant, brilliant plan. And so it became this thing that um, whenever I've gone in for an infusion, it's a red lip day and people all over, like I have friends in Germany and Hawaii and Michigan and wherever else, and they slap on some red lipstick and take a selfie, post it on social media. And the funny thing is, you know, they were doing it for me as a show of support. And again, this, this connection from miles and miles and miles away that, Hey, we're with you. We're thinking of you. Wonderful. But it was so cool to see as that evolved, you know, I look at someone's photo and I'm, I'm commenting on it. And then they have a ream of comments totally unrelated of just people saying, you look so beautiful. You look so wonderful. I love this. Or, you know, Oh, that's, that's such a great shade on you, whatever it is. People who don't even necessarily know why they're doing it. And it just created this, this ripple effect of positivity, of joy on those days throughout my entire like Facebook feed was just smiles and, and bold red lips and this, this kind of wacky energy to it, which was so, so great that again, helped me not just sit there feeling sorry for myself. And it also was helpful, I think, for all my friends and these kind of circles of people around me that to see someone else go through cancer is such a helpless situation. You can't actually do anything. Like you can make meals for them. You can, there's so many nice things you can do, but like you can't fix this problem and it feels so helpless. And so to have something to, to kind of band us together, to have that, um, you know, connection was, was so wonderful. And unfortunately, you know, then we came around a couple years later and I said, Hey guys, hope you still have your red lipstick. Um, and also this time, Emily, um, was able to do a fundraiser and design t-shirts that a lot of people have the Molly's red lip army and the proceeds of that, um, portion was able to go to Metaviver, which is a hugely important, important organization that, um, actually donates all of a hundred percent of their funds to research for metastatic breast cancer, which is very, very important. 
Are people still able to get the t-shirts? Um, I believe there was a limited time on that fundraiser. I've been meaning to to check in on that because I've had a couple people like contact me and ask about them if they've seen them. But I think with the, the company that, that we used, it was just a, a short time thing. But maybe that's something we should bring back. Hmm. How cool. How has music helped you through this entire experience? Um, I think it's it's something especially with these lip syncs and I have a running um, playlist on my phone that has enough songs to get me through the next few years. So I think right now I have this strange superstition or talisman that as long as I have enough song ideas, I'm going to make it. <laughs> so I just need to keep adding onto that list. Um, but yeah, there, there are songs that make me feel defiant. There are songs that I think are just really funny. Um, you know, even the, the one I did most recently, the impossible dream, it's, it's, I like to, I love to walk this line of something that is poignant and something that is goofy. Um, and I, I love kind of the double entendre of that because the words of impossible dream hit me so, so hard. The idea of trying to beat an unbeatable foe in my case with stage four cancer, like mm, that, that right in the feels. But then I'm doing it with this <laughs> terribly fake beard on and I brought a helmet to cancer treatment and I look like my dad who I actually <laughs> played Man of La Mancha back years ago at Midland. So, um, you know, it's just, I, I think that's, that's something that's really important to me is that it just like life, it's never all one thing, right? It's, it's never all good, all bad. There are layers everywhere you look. And so here I am sitting here having this, this treatment happen to me. And, and the song I think is so powerful about, um, just the need to press on despite anything. And, and yet it's, it's kind of funny. It's kind of tongue in cheek because of my ridiculous costume. Um, but you know, or, or things like one of my favorite ones was doing, um, Annie, I did, I don't need anything but you, the duet at the end of the show. So I did a, a split screen as little orphan Annie with a red wig, but then as bald daddy Warbucks. And there's a moment where, um, I think there's a line in the song about being an apple seller. So I'd had an apple and at one one moment you see me kind of toss the apple and then the other character catches it and it kind of works but it's so poorly done that I laughed so hard when I first saw when I was like watching the film back and like the delay between the throw and the catch is so comically terrible I was I was like in tears laughing at it I thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen and it was not not at any moment made me think oh I need to redo this and get it right no 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 I thought this is gold I have to put it on the internet um yeah yeah it's there's so many songs that that I pick um you know either if they have some kind of good message or I just think they're they're hilarious um and I try to mix it up you know I've done musical theater, I've done Disney, I've done pop and, and all sorts of different stuff. And I think that that's, that variety kind of, kind of keeps me energized <laughs> as well. Do you have one playlist or do you have playlists for different moods, different things? Right now, everything is all one, 
playlist. It's just called season two, although season two has no end in sight. So it's going to be a long playlist by the time we're done. Um, and yeah, it is a mix, you know, some things, um, I think are more, you know, even if I choose something that's like a ballad or something slower, I'm generally going to do it with some kind of, um, ironic or comedic element. One of my other favorites is, um, for Thanksgiving, the last time I did empty chairs at empty tables and dressed as a turkey. (laughs) So, you know, it's this, it's this terribly like, you know, sad song in the show. And, and this really, the, the music is very, there's a lot of feelings there, but then you're watching me do it as a turkey and uh, you know, the, and the night before, of course, I'm sitting on my living room floor, like cutting out construction paper feathers to construct this silly costume. But that's exactly it. When I talk about a distraction from cancer, that's the best thing I could do. I, I you know, I'm, I'm concentrating so much on the production value and making sure that, that the shapes I'm making, the lip syncing is on point and, and all the props and whatever else that I need. It doesn't oh. give me as much time to think about death. So that's good. And it is on point. When we were talking about this on Wednesday. I'm like, you are so good at what you do. Like, it's not like you're doing it and it's like, well, we're enjoying it because of like the value of it. Like literally the the performance value, like what you're doing is done so well. Like you are all in. And it's funny to hear you talk about when you look back at your older videos, how you wish you would have done it differently when, I mean, we're all just probably watching it going, it's amazing that this is in existence, that this is just even happening. Um, what was your favorite video that you've done? Oh, goodness. Um, that's a terribly difficult question because I have a soft spot for so many. Um, one of my favorite experiences, though, my favorite stories, is that in October, the first time, now October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, but it's also Halloween month, and I knew early on I wanted to do, I put a spell on you, Bette Midler from Hocus Pocus. Heck yeah. But that if I was going to do that, and I, I look back now, I probably could have done just Bette Midler's character and that would have been way easier. But me being an idiot, I was like, no, I have to do all three witches. But I need separate costumes and separate makeup and separate wigs for each. <laughs> and I need to figure out doing a, a kind of trifold effect here. So I'm in my treatment center um, in October. And, you know, the, getting back to have learning learned things along the way, I know now not to worry about any type of full-length costume because it never. I never get anything into the frame really lower than my chest. Mm-hmm. Um, to the point, total offshoot here. But when I did my Disney princesses video, I actually went to Amazon and bought like, <laughs> excuse me, but bought the slutty version of the princesses because there's <laughs> the dresses are short and they were way cheaper than the full length. And I knew that the dress wasn't gonna be on camera. But boy, my Amazon suggestions after that were colorful. Um, yeah, yeah, very interesting. But going back to the the witches, so I'm I'm there, and at some point I'm like, and I'm rushing around because at that point I was only on immunotherapy, thank goodness. But my my infusions were a little shorter, so like the clock was ticking, and I was trying to get these three videos done. And this poor woman, I never saw her again, but. This delightful social worker knocked on my, not kind of tried to come in 
And she was going around like giving care packages or a little something to all the breast cancer patients. Like it's breast cancer month. And she comes in and I'm like half in and out of like a corset and makeup and a wig. And I was just, she was like, so (laughs) I just, I still laugh thinking about the look on her face. She was so confused, you know? And, and she looks at me and she's like, time I could come back I was like I'm really I'm so sorry I'm really busy and I'm this is probably gonna take my whole appointment so if you want to give your gift bag to anyone else like please with my blessings but I I really have to get back to my video um but just I I think moments like that crack me up so much because that's it's what works for me like I um to just kind of sit there and and have that all happen to me again it just doesn't doesn't jive but it was so I felt bad for her, but it was so funny. <laughs> That's a great story. I love the the Disney princess one. Um, that one is super fun. And now I'm never going to see that video the same. Yeah, all those dresses cut off well, well above the knee. I mean, how many people walk out of a chemo treatment with like four dates? You know, I know, right? <laughs> but that's the other thing is I, I, I am, uh, I don't ever put anything on ahead of time. So I, I sometimes have like lugged like Ikea bags worth of props and costumes into these treatments. But people ask me about that a lot. I think there's an assumption that I'm like the court jester of the chemo ward and I amuse everybody, um, which is not true because I'm very cognizant of the fact that not everyone feels as good as I do. So I'm very young, which you know, sucks in a way that this shouldn't have happened to me. But the flip side of that is I tolerate my medicines pretty well. My body like takes the hit and I'm okay. And I have enough energy to show up on a treatment day and be silly and do these costumes. But there are other people for whom the infusion process is very fatiguing as it takes a long time. And, um, it's, it's not always something that I want to splash in front of somebody else's face. Like, look at me. I'm so young and cheerful, and here are my flashy costumes. Um, so in a chemo ward in the movies, a lot of times you see people all in a row in chairs right next to each other, and they're chatting, and they're making friends. Um, I've not yet been in a ward that's set up that way. It's more, um, like, distinct kind of areas where you're, you're curtained off. There's some privacy and all that. So I go in, the people who do (laughs) see my costumes will be my nurse for the day. Um, whoever comes in and accesses the port and does the, everything with the IV. So I, I try to give them fair warning when it's somebody new. Um, but again, I, I enjoy even just (laughs) last Monday, my nurse came in and, um, I was in full Don Quixote you know, aging, makeup, beard, everything. And she's like, here's your IV bag. Just double checking. This is your name and birth date and the drug you're getting today. We're good. Okay, great. <laughs> totally unfazed. Um, I, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's fun to be able to entertain the nurse staff, but I, I basically, I think for the other patients who are there, if they're able to see it online, awesome. But it's not something that I really try to, you know, be too obvious with in person. That's something I didn't even think about because when many of us, well, I'd see, you know, anyone that's seen these videos, I would imagine it brings them joy and it's it's something that brightens their life. But then there's this other side, like you said, this this other world of people that for them it's painful 
And it just reminds me that anything we do in life has has both sides. You know, I, I, I think that we're afraid to do things sometimes because how will someone react? And no matter what we do, like you're doing this incredible thing and you're bringing all this joy into the world, but then also there are a group of people somewhere that can't connect with it or it brings it it doesn't bring joy for that reason that you described but it's still not a reason to not do it like we have to put out into the world what we want to put out into the world right is do you have any advice about that i think you hit the nail on the head um just that i think this is this is something we all are kind of learning along the way growing and adapting and in having especially having social media presence because we, we put things, we put content out and it's, it's not maybe just for me or my immediate family or friends, but it, it goes out to the world. And so I think we do have a lot of choices about the tone and the persona we curate online. Um, and so my approach with that is kind of twofold. First off that I do. It's my greatest joy to make other people laugh, to to brighten their day. And also I, I try to kind of then meter that with um, sharing articles about health, uh, health care and access to, to health care, um, you know, hopefully bringing awareness and and telling my story as a young patient that you know, so we, we, we understand, because I think a lot of young people see themselves as indestructible, as infallible, maybe as not needing health insurance. And I'm here to say kind of like, you know, yes, I've got the balloons taped to my head or the other costumes that I've got going on. But underneath all that is somebody who is um, very sick and, and needing all this, this treatment, these terrible, terrible treatments. And not to be like, oh, it could happen to you, but just to be aware check yourself, you know, don't, don't delay on that. Um, and also to be honest about when I do have the flip side, the darkness, the negative feelings, the depression, the fear, the absolute terror. Oh my goodness. Um, but that's real and that's valid. I'm not here to be a toxic positivity champion. Um, but to say there is good and there is bad, there is darkness and there is light never all one thing for me and for I think most of us um and so that's that's important as well that I I think the transparency you talked about before that's important to me I want to I want to be authentic and not to like bum everybody out all the time but just just to kind of you know be as honest as I can be along with all the the comedy well, thank you so much for taking the time to share all of this with me. Um, it's just a joy to actually get to meet you. you thank know, you so much. To, actually get to spend some time with you. Um, if there was one question you wish I would have asked you during this interview or one thing you could have shared that you haven't shared yet, what would it be? Um, I think, you know, we. I think we covered a, a lot of wonderful things and maybe... Um, just just to say this is a really personalized and um, perhaps unique slice of what to do if you have cancer. I don't expect that 
people listening to this or newly diagnosed cancer patients are going to be like, oh, okay, this I'm supposed to go out and get costumes in now and do this thing. It's it's more of finding whatever works for you. Um, and I say this both for cancer patients and their communities, their caretakers, their their friends and family, um, of finding ways to to have your own angle on it of something that helps you control your own narrative. Um, I think a lot of the ridiculous charm from Harry Potter um, is a little bit how I, I look at this because it's it's not the absence of fear. It's taking that that I fear the most and laughing at it and making it goofy and putting a costume on it and being silly about it. Amy Poehler has a wonderful quote of um, there's power in looking silly and not caring that you do. And that, that does connect back to our, you know, performer personality conversation, I think. Um, but yeah, I think I don't want to be, again, not a toxic positive thing here, but just to say there is a positive angle, I think on almost anything. It just can sometimes take our work to find it. Thank you so much, Molly. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Sing Coach Conduct. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the show by clicking the subscribe button.